very often you can catch yourself spider webbing or spiraling when you make these like declarative statements that make no sense. So this is where like you do one thing that you didn't mean to, or you didn't want to. And you're like, in a second, your brain can go in all these directions. You're like, and then I'm going to have to sell my car. And you're like, wait, what just happened? How did I get from like, you know, I saw an email that said like, hey, did you forget to come to this meeting? And then your brain is like, and I'm going to die alone in the street. And you're like, what just happened? Usually what I recommend to people is when you find yourself spiraling, when you have one of those, one of those declaratory statements, take a pause and try and come back to whatever the most recent actual fact you have. What triggered this whole thing? Right? What brought you from that point? So if it's something like I ate something I shouldn't have, okay, great. All of the other stuff I just made up is, is all conjecture. That's all pretend. Hey there, welcome to Tater Talks, two bitches talk fitness. I'm Brooke. And hello, I'm Iris. On this show, we challenge the common understanding of what it means and what it takes to be fit and healthy. We explore all things fitness, nutrition, mindset, and mental health without the fluff and BS. So grab a coffee, get ready to laugh, cry, even learn a thing or two. Let's get into it. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Josh Smith. Josh is a psychologist specializing in chronic illness, pain, relationships, boundaries, and communication. And Brooke and I had the wonderful opportunity at the Inner Circle Retreat, Site Fitness Inner Circle Retreat in the summer of 2022 to meet him, talk to him, listen to him speak. And I'm so excited for this conversation because every time I, I hear him speak on podcasts or even in his written posts on Instagram, I learn so much. So welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here and appreciate the invite. So how are you? What's going on? Doing well. Doing well. I mean, it's uh, like we were talking about before, the weather's been a little bit insane, but <laughs> things are good. And I'm psyched to be able to be here and talking to you guys about all things life. You know, I know there's a there's often a specific focus that you guys are after and that hopefully your listeners are coming on not to just talk about kind of one specific area of health and wellness, but, you know, I'm excited to to kind of be here to talk about kind of more of the emotional and personal that goes into it, which I think is, I think it's a big part of it, right? I mean, if you want any change in life, it's kind of making sure you're not focused on one specific area and that you're looking at the the whole of it to figure out what are your hurdles and barriers and strengths. And so I think it's awesome that you guys are incorporating that with the work that you do. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, thanks. And I love that you said that because I've shamelessly swiped something from Brad Jensen, uh, the sober bodybuilder, where he talks about the four legs of the chair. I don't know if you've listened to his podcast or listened to him. See, emotional, spiritual, physical, and mental. And if any one of those legs are wobbly, it's not going to be a very stable chair. Yep. I love that. Yep. I've heard, I, I've heard a lot of variations of that, and I love it every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard somebody do a presentation where they talked about a three-legged chair where they were talking about almost like a like a bar stool. And, and in the medical world, they were saying that what we get used to or expect is one leg is routine preventative care, you know, things that we have to do, like take medication, see the doctor. The second leg is interventions, procedures, surgeries, and the third leg is self-care. And the presenter that I was I, I was listening to is basically saying 
very often, at least in the US, we prioritize those first two where it's a, okay, what can I take or what do I have to do that's going to solve this? And what he was saying is that that third leg of self-care is the one that we always shortchange because it takes the most personal work. And that if you shortchange it, sure, you can sit on the stool and it will be okay, but it's always going to be wobbly and it's never going to be at its maximum. Same exact message, um, just more in the medical. And I remember hearing it and it was the most basic slide I've ever seen. And I was like, well, damn, it didn't need to be like, it didn't need to have anything else other than just, yep, I can't deny any part of that. Like, can't get away from it. Yeah. And I feel like that's very normal, especially like here in the States where we are working, you know, 40 hour work weeks, five days a week. Like we have a tendency to put other things, including our own self-care, including our own health, including our own mental health. I mean, health is, I, I believe health is a whole body experience for a person, mind, body, spirit. And people are so used to putting everything else above that, that, you know, eventually it leads to that burnout. And then people try to get perfectionistic. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to roll it with is it. Now let's like go it. with it. <laughs> it is now. And people become like, they always say I'm a perfectionist when it comes to their goals. When in reality, I feel like a lot of perfectionism comes from feeling out of control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you even hit on one of the most basic things that we run into just culturally or societally that even the notion of a 40 hour work week, it's kind of BS, right? We say 40 hours, but find anybody who's working a 40 hour job that works 40 hours, right? Most people, when they get their first job or they start off, sure, it's 40 hours on paper, but very often there's this unspoken expectation of like, well, you'll probably put in another five to 10, but we don't talk about it. So a lot of people end up working 50 hours, they say 40, but they're really putting in this extra time. And then what happens is when people are rewarded for it and they're told, wow, this is amazing. You're getting done in 40 hours. What most people can't get, well, it's because I'm working 50, but we're not talking about it. And so then people will get promoted and they'll say, well, we have to give you all this extra responsibility and it will come with an extra 10 hours. And you're like, oh, okay, right. But now I'm working 60. But we don't adjust that initial, we say we work 40, but we're not. And then people are like, I don't understand why I don't have time to do any of this other stuff. Yeah. Or energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention if you're a parent and have children, you know, that takes work on top of it. I can't tell you how many clients I have that, you know, are mothers and fathers and they have a job that they go to. And then at the very end, like at the end of the day, they're feeling like they've let themselves down because they don't have the time or even the energy to put into themselves. And that typically happens when they're putting extra unnecessary expectations on themselves when it comes to their goals and trying to be a perfectionist and trying to do everything right. And then they end up feeling, you know, just the guilt of not being able to do that when people aren't noticing just how draining working a full-time job and being a parent, or even if you're not a parent, even just being a partner or having like interpersonal relationships, it all takes work. Any kind of responsible adult. Exactly. Yeah. Having pets, exactly. having a house, having, yeah. All of it. Yeah. I do a lot of work with, with chronic illness, uh, anywhere from kind of chronic mental illness to chronic pain. And 
when I talk to people about how they budget their resources, I very often will talk about any chronic condition and I often list parenting. And sometimes it's to get a laugh, but also it's <laughs> because what wrong, I'm trying no. to point out is like, <laughs> right, if you have a chronic condition like this or like that or parenting, and you can always see people laugh and then they go, wait, hold on. I'm like, how is it not a chronic condition? I'm not saying that as a negative. I'm not saying that parenting can't be amazing, but it is a responsibility that exists always. They, they're, you, you can't hit pause on it. And so, yeah, it, and we don't factor those things in. And I mean, some jobs and some careers are more, more amenable to some of those changes or some of the, you know, and I think the real problem is that, you know, all of this, right. comes down to how honest are we with ourselves? How honest are employers with their employees? Like, are we being truly upfront and honest about it? Or is there little bits of this unspoken, you know, BS? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's where all of a sudden it turns into this like, all right, well, I have to take care of my kids and I have to take care of this and I have to take care of that. And well, taking care of of family and kids is a full-time job. A full-time job is a full-time job. You know, dealing with medical illness or anything like that can be a full-time job. And it just ends up, it adds up and it adds up. And it's just a ton that people have on their plate. And there isn't like an easy escape. You can take a vacation from work. You can't really take a very easy vacation from having pets, having kids, having family, having like, it's, there's drains, there's, there's demand all the time. That's so true. It's so true. And then when you add the component of trying to take care of yourself and you're looking at to where you can fit it in, when in reality, if we, if we look at the honest picture, that's what we should be doing regardless before anything else, we should be taking care of ourselves. And it's so hard when people have been conditioned that, you know, all these other things are more important. And I feel like there's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame around not being able to take care of yourself just from the standpoint that it's our basic need. Yep. Guilt and shame. Guilt and shame can ruin almost everything. Guilt is one of those things that that so many people combat all the time. And it's a real shame because guilt and shame. And then I said, awesome. Um, But I think one of the difficulties is that the goal of guilt, like guilt can actually be a productive emotional experience if it serves to let you know that you're doing something that goes against your own value system, your own belief. If you are making a choice that you know isn't what you want to do, that's when guilt can be helpful, right? You know, somebody invites you to something and you say, nope, I'm not going to come to your performance or your whatever. And then you're sitting at home doing nothing and you feel guilty. If that guilt is helping you realize, ah, I made a decision and I don't agree with my own decision. And this is helping me realize I should have made a different choice because it's not in line with my own values. Then guilt can actually serve a purpose. The majority of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, guilt is making you feel badly about a decision that might actually be a good decision. And so that is when guilt becomes problematic and can ruin things because now it turns into what should I have done or which choice did I make? And was it the right choice, the wrong choice? And it gets in your head and you start saying like, well, if I feel guilty, it's because somebody else doesn't agree with my decision or somebody else feels bad and I'm going to let that override what's good for me. 
And so it's a fine line because sometimes guilt can help you make a choice that's more in line with kind of who you are. And other times guilt can basically cloud seeing what you need and what you want. And then you start making decisions based off of not wanting to disappoint or upset other people. And you end up disappointing or letting yourself down. And unfortunately, I think most people experience more of that really negative, not helpful guilt than the kind of initial, like what it should be for, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it does. Absolutely. So how do you tell, how do you distinguish between the two, the helpful kind of guilt and the more detrimental one? <sighs> That's harder. That's harder to figure out. And I think honestly, sometimes it's trial and error. Mm. You know, sometimes it, it's it's being able to say like, well, if I'm really not sure, which choice do I need to make? And it's okay to make, uh, I hate to ever say right or wrong choice, but it's okay sometimes to say, you know what? I was feeling guilty. So I decided to go do that thing. And if you go and you do it and you realize, you know what? I feel better knowing that I came, you know, well then, then, then you made a choice that was right for you. But if you go to that thing and you get there and you say, why am I here? I don't want to be here. I feel stressed. I feel tense. This is going to make my evening worse, my day worse tomorrow. Like, I don't want to be here right now. And I'm only here because I didn't want this other person to be angry or I didn't want this other person to be disappointed. In my mind, when you make those choices, it's figuring out, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with making that choice and saying, hey, I'm doing this for somebody else. But if you realize, oh, I'm doing it for all the wrong reasons, that's when it's trying to figure out, okay, I might need to try and make a different mistake next time. Uh, I'm a big proponent of that idea of make a different mistake. You know, uh, it's one of those funny things of, of, this is actually my high school tennis tennis coach used to say that. And at the time, it felt like it drove me nuts. Like she'd be, you know, <laughs> if I tried to lob somebody at the net and messed up three times in a row and just served them an overhead, she'd be like, make a different mistake. And at the time I was like, yeah, make a different mistake. But I was at high school, so I was an idiot, you know, but <laughs> who isn't? what I realized is what a supportive thing that she was saying. She wasn't saying stop messing up. She wasn't saying, you know, win. She was, she was saying, Hey, you're going to feel better if you make a different mistake. So if you want to lob it, hit it out. I don't care, but try something different, you know, try and hit it down the line, try and like hit it in the net. I don't care. You're going to feel better if you make a different mistake. I think sometimes if you're trying to figure out which guilt it is, it's the idea of like, well, you don't want to keep making the same mistake. And if you keep making the same mistake of, well, I should go. And even though I'm there and I'm resentful and I'm upset and I'm frustrated, I'm just going to keep doing that. I think one of the things that perpetuates that is the unhealthy form of guilt that when you say no, thank you, and you stay home, that now being at home gets ruined because guilt comes into it and basically says like, wow, we're just going to sit here and watch TV. And you're like, all right, well, just because somebody invited me and I said, no, my night's ruined. There's no win. If I go, I don't feel guilty, but I feel angry and resentful. And if I stay home, now I feel guilty and I can't enjoy it. You know, it's that notion of sometimes make a different mistake, try something different. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. You know, you're going to learn some information just by trying a different approach. Sometimes that approach has to be being a little bit more selfish. And I mean that in a nice way, not a negative at all. Like, you know, it's kind of taking care of yourself. Yeah. It reminds me of a really awesome conversation that I had with one of my in-person clients actually. And he's an amazing guy and he's very, very insightful. And he likes to read a lot of different eye-opening books, a lot of insightful books. And 
he said something to me just a few weeks ago and he says, yeah, I'm getting used to disappointing people. And I'm like, what? And he's like, and like, I kind of like giggled and he goes, yeah, I realized that the reason why it's hard for me to reach my goal is because I'm always saying yes when I want to say no. And you have to get used to disappointing people because if I'm not disappointing people, I'm only disappointing and letting down myself for not sticking up for my boundaries. And I was blown away. And I'm I like, love that, that. that is That's so awesome. true because I feel like I see a lot of that, not just with this in particular individual, but with a lot of clients, you know, they go to family gatherings that they don't necessarily want to go to because they know that they're going to have to give a bunch of energy that they don't necessarily even have to give themselves. And then at the very end, they're left feeling resentful. They're left feeling drained. They're left feeling upset. And so I thought that that was so just intuitive and mind-blowing as to it's okay to disappoint other people if it's serving you a better purpose and it's going to protect your own energy battery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love it. That should go on a t-shirt. <laughs> you know, it's funny because not... Not a lot of good has come out of the pandemic, right? But one of the things I think is interesting is in the very beginning of it, when everybody was told kind of just stay home, do nothing, a lot of people got a pretty big view into what are the things I'm doing all the time that it turns out I don't like. I can't tell you how many clients I know who were like, hey, I've been part of this book club since college. And I, if anybody had asked me, I thought I loved it. And when it got canceled by no fault of my own, no guilt. And that person was like, oh my God, I was so relieved that this was like not happening, but no guilt. I know a lot of people who kind of figured out, okay, I didn't realize that this was an obligation. I thought it was something I loved, but I was doing it out of obligation. Why? People who have said, you know, well, we, we've all had that time where you get invited to a wedding and you know, you're like a fourth tier invite and, <laughs> yeah. and they know you are. And like, nobody's, there's no problem with it, right? You get that invitation and you're like, wow, I'm actually like really honored that I made the cut because I know I'm, I'm fourth tier. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a time where people would be like, well, I mean, if I made the cut, the right thing to do is go. And now I think there are some people who have started to flex that a little bit to be like, right, it's really lovely that they invited me, you know, and I care about them and I like them, but I also know we're not close enough that I need to use my vacation time, my money, my funds to like, to go do that. It's okay to say, no, thank you. And I think a lot of people were stuck in this, like the right thing to do. You know, I can't just put in air quotes, always good on a podcast to put things in air quotes, but <laughs> the right thing to do is go. And I think people have started to adjust that to be like, wait a second, it's okay. And you know, it's a funny story, but you know, in the grand scheme of self-care, one of the first, like my own, like learning moment was actually, I was at camp and I did my lifeguard training. So I was, I don't know, 14 and I was getting my lifeguard certification and 14, I was sure I was being trained to be a hero as opposed to like a pool babysitter. But I took it very, very seriously. And there was one lesson that we had where basically the instructor said, if somebody is drowning and you swim out to them and they can't calm down and they're flailing, you have to stay away from them. They taught us to swim at a certain distance because when somebody is drowning, their tendency is to grab you and try and climb you like a ladder, which means they'll push you under or they could hit you or they could 
And he said, if somebody's not calm and they're flailing, stay at a distance and you have to actually wait until they pass out or start to drown and then get them. Because if you rush in there when they're struggling, you could both drown. This bothered me beyond, like, I really upset me. I was like, wait, I'm supposed to save somebody. And you're telling me in this moment, I have to save myself. I have to protect myself first. And I was like, but my job is to save that person. It was not the average 14-year-old or normal 14-year-old because I thought about this nonstop and I desperately wanted to go back the next day and tell him he was wrong. I wanted to say, I thought about it and I came up with an alternate. You're wrong. And I thought about it and thought about it and I couldn't. I couldn't come up with any alternate. And so I told him and I said, this is really upsetting me. And he said, well, I can make it worse. And I was like, well, why, why would we want to make it worse? And he said, let's say the person does want to be saved. Totally, totally grateful. They do everything that you ask. And between you and shore, there are rocks. You have to put that person between you and the rocks and use them as a human shield. Because if you get knocked out, you both drown. And I was like, well, shit, you in fact made it worse. Great, thanks. And it stuck with me because in some ways what he was saying is the importance of self-care. You can't be there for other people. You can't save someone else. You can't help everybody who's drowning if you don't take care of yourself and watch out for your safety, right? If you hear anything when you're 14 and it sticks with you, you know, it was just one of those moments where I was like, right, because if if you go down, that's it. All the people you could have helped in the future, not there. And I didn't like it. That's the same reason they say put your own oxygen mask on first. Yep. If you don't, you're essentially useless. You're going to die. You can't help anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I think we've labeled a lot of self-care as as selfish oh my gosh uh, as a luxury (laughs) and it's really amazing i I mean i know people who have chronic pain conditions who still see medical massage or acupuncture or you know as as a luxury because if most of your life going to get a massage was seen as a luxury something you do once a year on vacation for fun well all of a sudden if it switches and now it's a okay we have to do this consistently because you know you have muscle tension and muscle tightness that creates pain people have trouble adjusting that away from being like no it's a luxury so what happens is if somebody has something scheduled that is self-care oriented and somebody calls and asks for help they're more likely to be like oh well you need a ride to the airport like mm, okay well i'll cancel my thing right because in most of our in most of our kind of social what you know not equity but like if we're looking at it as an equation of some sort, needs always outweigh wants, right? So if somebody presents something as a need and you have downplayed your own need to a want, right? Like not, I need to go to this appointment. I want to, or even if it's not an appointment, even if you just said, Hey, you know what? I have something really important Saturday afternoon, Saturday morning, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to get my workout in. I'm going to like do some meal prep. I'm going to take care of myself you know, and then I'm going to go to this thing in the afternoon and somebody calls and asks for a ride to the airport. It's amazing how quickly people will be like, well, I wanted the morning to myself. I don't need it. And so all of a sudden they'll cancel it and they'll go do this, this errand. And this is problematic. If you are somebody who chronically labels your needs as a want, 
If you downplay your need to a want all the time, the worst case scenario is if you have somebody in your life who always overplays their want as a need, you always end up doing things for other people before yourself. So I know I keep talking about the airport, but like you take that example. I always tell people, ask yourself, is there another way to get this met? Right. So if I set aside three hours on a Saturday morning to exercise, go for a walk, you know, like prep some food, things like that. Okay. Can I get those three hours back? No, I can't. Because if the next time I have that available is the next week, how does that help me for food prep for the next three or four days? Can that person get to the airport a different way? Absolutely. There are a million different ways you can get to the airport, which means it's not a need. It's a want. They want you to drive them there. But if you mislabel those, that's where guilt comes in because guilt kind of guilt always grows and thrives in that gap between like what you choose to do and what you think you were supposed to do. And if you mislabel needs and wants, that gap is there. And that's when guilt comes in because it's learning to say, wait a second, like they want me to take them to the airport. I need that time Saturday morning to myself. And we're not inherently good at that. Well, some people are better than others. Some people are very good at that. I've become very good at that over a long time of practicing that that distinguishing. And it's it's hard. Right. It takes it's, work. Yeah. So how would you communicate that to somebody who may or may not understand it? Maybe that's a different topic for another time. But how do you communicate that to somebody like, look, I need this time or I need to make these choices. Like, I do not want to go out to eat more than once a week because I have these goals or I need to take this time to go for a walk to clear my own head. And they're kind of like, well, don't you want to hang out? Like, don't you want to go out to eat? Don't you want to have drinks with friends? How would you communicate that to somebody? We keep coming back to the notion of honesty, right? But right. it starts with, with, with you. It starts with you having confidence and knowing and believing that. So before you try and convince somebody else, you have to re like, so when you said that you've been working on that, right? What that means is that you've taken the time and energy and effort to say, right, I know this is something I want, something I need, something that's good for me. A lot of people, that's the guilt component. Guilt messes with that. Guilt brings in this like, do I need it? Do, do I want it? Is it necessary? And starts to pick it apart. So it starts with yourself being confident with the idea that this is a reasonable option. This is a reasonable request. It's, a, it's not some sort of like horrible, like, oh, it makes me a bad person because I want to prioritize my own needs or my own goals. That makes it so much easier to tell other people because when you're confident about it, there isn't as much anger. There isn't as much defensiveness. There isn't as much. So when you say to somebody, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I really need to, like I, I had set aside time, you know, for whatever, for, for, for art, for music, for exercise. When you're confident that that is what you need and is a healthy, good thing for you, it's so much easier to tell somebody else. Because when they express disappointment, you're okay with it. So when they say, oh, bummer, because I really wanted to go out to dinner, when you're not as confident with it, that all oh, bummer is enough to be like, like some people, it will make them sad. Some people, it makes them angry. Some people, you know, but you end up with this response of like, why did you even ask, right? It, it makes it so like 
you're upset the person even asked. That gets back to what we were saying before. By asking, you ruined it, right? Because now I either have to go to dinner, which I don't want to do, or I have to stay home. And now I'm not going to enjoy that as much because I feel guilty that I didn't go out. Well, when you start to feel more confident is when you have the ability to be like, yeah, I 100% understand that that's disappointing for them. And that's okay. Because if we're going to dinner tomorrow, I'm going to show up as a better version of myself than if I go to dinner tonight and tomorrow. Because then I'm going to go tonight and the whole time I'm going to feel uncomfortable or tense or frustrated. And then tomorrow I'm going to be even more mad. And listen, we also all have times where where we do have to entertain those requests for somebody else, right? Because if your partner or somebody in your life says, hey, I do need you, or I need some companionship, or I need to go out for dinner, sometimes, yeah, it's absolutely okay to override your own, this is what I wanted, or I had in my mind, but it can't be every time. And it can't be that that person gets their needs met every single time they, they need something and you don't get yours. It has to be a balance. And of course, there are times that we have to kind of adjust that plan. It's just for somebody who is a natural accommodator or somebody who's more of kind of a peacekeeper or an empath, very often the internal view is that the most value you bring is in being able to make the largest number of people around you happy and content. That's how we assess value. So if somebody brings something up and you're like, well, it's net negative for me, but it's a really good thing for them. A natural empath is going to say, well, it's kind of the right thing to do. It's almost like it's almost like a compulsion, almost a like, well, if I can sacrifice myself to make things better for others, that's what I should do. That's the most value I can bring. A natural empath or accommodator will like, like if you think about with a group of friends trying to decide where are we going to eat, an empath will look at that and say, and say, well, my biggest value here is being flexible being totally happy going anywhere. Because if there's three of us trying to figure out where to eat and I am no longer a variable, we just made this infinitely easier if I'm willing to eat absolutely anywhere. When you internalize that as value, well, then what happens is you start to actually lose sight of what do I want? You stop even asking yourself what you want. You only ask, hey, what am I willing to do? And will I do this for others? It's why often empaths early phases of dating can gravitate towards type A or slightly more selfish or narcissistic individuals because they're so decisive. So when they're like, oh, where should we go to dinner? And they're like, I want pizza. And empaths are like, that's fantastic. We wasted zero time worrying about, is everybody going to get what they want? You knew exactly what you wanted and we went. Similarly, painful to watch two accommodators or two empaths decide where to go, where they want to go to dinner. Because if... I'm trying to figure that out with somebody else. And I say, well, where are we going to go? Where do we want to go to eat? A natural empath, their first response is going to go, I don't know. I'm up for anything. What do you want? Okay. So if we're both in that accommodating factor and I say, well, what do you want? You're going to say like, oh, I don't know. What do you want? Great. Now, a natural empath is going to not actually ask themselves what they want. They're going to say, well, what do I think Iris wants? What do I think Brooke wants? Right? So I'm not going to answer, what do I want? I'm going to try and pick what I think you want. And if some part of me is like, you know what? I know that Italian is your favorite. I'm going to suggest it, even though it's not what I want. And then that other accommodator is going to go, well, Italian's usually my favorite. I just had it yesterday. But if Josh wants it, sure. And now me and that other person are going to go get Italian food when we both wanted burgers. 
but neither one of us was able to actually say it. So two accommodators walk, trying to decide dinner is like, you know, you'll never actually know if either one of you got what you wanted. Yeah. yeah. And, and I feel like this happens a ton in parenting relationships. And, and the reason why I bring this up is because I see it a lot with clients that have kids where, you know, they they feel like they always have to put themselves on the back burner because they have to take because you have to take care of your kids, you know, like as a parent, that's your job. You have to take care of your kids. But usually and, you know, I may be wrong, but there's usually a parent that does significantly more. And so it comes down to. I have worked with individuals where it's like, well, I can't because I have to do X, Y, and Z for the kids. I have to take them to soccer practice, do this, do this. And a lot of times if you ask, well, where is your partner? Like, can your partner, oh, well, they've had a long week or they've had a busy week. And so, you know, I have to do it. Like realizing that there's a lot that goes on with people kind of getting in their own way with not expressing their wants, their needs, and their boundaries, because I often have to tell my client when they say, well, so-and-so crossed my boundaries because I said that, you know, I can't, for example, go for a walk because I had this, but they ended up saying that they needed help with something. And so they crossed my boundaries when in reality, you kind of crossed your own boundaries. Right. You didn't advocate for yourself. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm full, I fully believe that boundaries aren't meant for other people. They're meant right. for yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so when people, you know, for example, ask me like, Hey, can you just skip your workout? Let's go grab food instead. It's like, no, I can't skip my workout because I've made a commitment to myself. Oh, well, I mean, you can always move your workout, right? Yeah, I can, but I'm not going to, because this is something that I do that helps keep me sane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think I think, you know, I've talked to both of you guys about this, right? But I, I tell people all the time, put it on your calendar. Mm-hmm. Like yes. we have a bad habit of putting things on our calendar, you know, for anybody who actually uses, you know, like a calendar for everything, which I think so many of us do now, we put things on there that we don't want to forget. Doctor's appointments, uh, meetings, you know, things like that. We don't tend to put on self-care. That ends up being negative space. We know it. So that same example of if you're like, okay, today's a day that works out, you know, my kid's in an after-school program, I finish up my day here, I'm going to have an hour and a half to myself. We don't block that hour and a half out. Very often, it just stays blank. And I know in my mind, oh, great, you know, Thursday afternoon, I'm going to have this block of time. But then anybody who makes a demand at all, work, friends, family, If they say, hey, Thursday afternoon, what are you doing? Well, you look at your calendar, it's open. It's open. And so you know, well, I was going to go do this then. But if you need me to bring you to the dentist, I'll bring you. Because it is open. Nothing's booked into it. And I tell people all the time, put it on your calendar. Because one, it mentally, it helps buy you time. When somebody says, what are you doing Thursday afternoon? You look, it's blocked. So now it gives the brain a reminder. I have something I've put there. So it's not open. It's not empty. And now if I want to help somebody out, either I have to delete my thing or, I mean, with a lot of calendar programs, if I add something else, it literally shrinks my thing and moves it aside. It literally pushes it aside. And 
when you do that visually, you're like, Ooh, I just pushed aside my thing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. one, it helps buy time. Cause you can say, Oh, you know what? Right now I'm booked, but let me check and I'll get back to you. Cause now you can get out of that direct, you know, kind of, kind of demand or, or kind of stressor. And also then you have to move it. So you now have to either say no, let it push yours aside, delete it or move it. And if there's nowhere to put it, you know, or two days later, you have another like, well, here's my next workout. Well, then there is nowhere to move it. It just is canceling it. Mm -hmm. And I also tell people to label those things very honestly. You know, I will tell people if it's something you need for yourself, like label it as like necessary self-care, don't cancel. Mm -hmm. You know, I love that because it just necessary it tells for my sanity. You, Yep. I tell people all the time if they're if they have to schedule regular like regular medical appointments, things they don't want to do. I tell people put it on your calendar as a necessary shit show. <laughs> Write it down. Because we try and convince ourselves that that we should want to do it, right? If I have to get an injection every 3 months and it makes me feel a little better, people try and convince themselves like, well, because it makes me feel better, I should be excited about it. Like, well, no, you shouldn't. Like, I, I like having my teeth clean. I don't like them being cleaned. Like, I don't have to like the dentist to enjoy the outcome. And so people will avoid scheduling things that they know they have to do, but they don't want to because they try and talk themselves into the fact that it's a good idea, which just doesn't work. You can't BS yourself. Can't gaslight yourself into it. Yeah. Right. You can't gaslight yourself. So it if doesn't you, work. <laughs> if you put it on your calendar as like a necessary shit show or like have to do it, don't want to, or like do not cancel this, it gives the brain a reminder of like, right, I set this as a priority. And it helps you be a little bit more honest with yourself. You guys at this point know I'm very visual. So like I have more metaphors <laughs> and analogies than any one person should ever use. But Mentally, I think when it comes to motivation or guilt or any of the things that we're talking about, I picture like there are little versions of you in your own head, right? And they're all wearing like a sports jersey and it says what their job is. So there's like an intellect, that's kind of the cognitive or, but then there's, there's guilt, <laughs> there, there's um, worry, there's creativity, there's all these different characters. One of those characters is an unfiltered character. This is the character that just says, absolutely everything. You know, this is when you have a thought and you're like, oh, we shouldn't say that. The unfiltered <laughs> character is the one that just says it like it is. And if there's conflict, it makes it so much harder to figure out how to move forward or change with diet. I, this is the example I always use is if I decided yesterday, I'm giving up candy. I'm not going to eat anything that's pure sugar. I'm not cutting sugar out of my diet, but if it's just sugar, I'm not going to do it. Okay. I go into work in the morning and there's a bowl of Hershey's Kisses. It's the unfiltered part of my brain that goes, ooh, candy. That, that's it. It's an unfiltered thought. It's an automatic thought. I can't stop it from happening. If the intellect character all of a sudden goes, hey, you can't eat that, there's a struggle. And now the unfiltered part of the brain is going to go, um, but I'm an adult and I have arms and they're clearly for everybody. Of <laughs> I course can, I though. can it's eat right that. right there. Right. Like, like, what are you talking about? And if, if the intellect can't pivot, and says, no, you can't eat them. Eventually, the unfiltered part of the brain and all these other characters get really annoyed because we're denying reality and we'll go, okay, if you're not going to listen to reason, I'll show you. And you eat four or five Hershey's Kisses. And then in walks guilt, who goes, what are we doing? We just decided we weren't going to do that. We don't even like chocolate. 
Like if we were going to waste the calories, why wouldn't we waste it on something we like? And all the other characters go, oh yeah, oh, that's, that. oops, that made sense. But it's because there was this conflict and it's teaching that kind of <laughs> the intellectual part of the brain to acknowledge that reality, to be honest and say, yeah, of course it's candy and it looks good. But we just decided that we were going to try and give that up. And if we're already going to break it, how about we do it for something we're excited about? That gets all of those characters way more on board because once guilt and all these other, like once everybody's involved, it can shut down the entire system, right? Because I also think we all have like a disaster prep character whose like job is to look out for, for, and unfortunately the disaster prep can sometimes link arms with other characters. And so if you break that one thing, oops, I ate these Hershey's kisses. Well, now if guilt and disaster prep and creativity and all these other people link arms, they're going to just start looking for all the other ways things are bad. And they will start looking, well, I messed up this and I messed up that, and I'm probably going to mess up this tomorrow. That's where creativity comes in. Creativity loves to just hypothesize other ways that things are going to go wrong. And this is how people end up delaying you know, the start of a diet, right? They'll, they'll literally say, okay, I'm starting my diet tomorrow. And then this one thing happens. And then it's all of these brain characters that go, oh my God, I can't believe we did that. And then, you know, we said we were going to start on Thursday, but why would I start on Friday? Because on Friday, like I like to go out to eat and then the weekends I eat terribly and, you know, all right, I guess I'll try again on Monday. And you're like, what, what, what just happened? You're like three Hershey's kisses on a Wednesday and all of a sudden your diet doesn't start until Monday. And it's because of all of that internal guilt and stress and shame of you did this one horrible thing and it really hampers us. It hampers us because the second you start telling yourself the truth and you can be a little bit more honest and you can try and convince the intellect to say like, yeah, this was unexpected. This was unusual. And we made a choice we, we maybe shouldn't have. Okay, let's try and do something different for this afternoon. Great. It's when you say like, well, that's not a big deal and that doesn't count. And I said it was today, but this is like, it's when we try and convince ourselves otherwise that it creates, it's like picture a boardroom of all these characters just yelling at each other. And it creates a state of angst and stress that's not fun. Yeah. So in that moment of, I call it a swirl, when everything's all swirling around in your head and you don't even know what you're thinking. How? How do you get out of that? How do you help yourself? I love I love that you call it a swirl because I often call it a spider web. <laughs> you know, and I literally picture it on on like a blank wall. It starts with one fact, right? And then mm -hmm. it breaks off and it's like, well, if this happened, well then what if A or B happens? Well, what if it's A, what if it's one, two, or three? But if it's B, what if it's like seven, eight, or nine? And it just expands and the brain just swirls or spirals out of control. Very often you can catch yourself spider webbing or spiraling when you make these like declarative statements that make no sense. So this is where like you do one thing that you didn't mean to, or you didn't want to. And you're like, and in a second, your brain can go in all these directions. You're like, and then, and you're like, and then I'm going to have to sell my car. Yeah. And you're like, wait, I'm going to die alone what? in the street. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Like, you know, and then I'm going to die alone in the street. And you're like, wait, what just happened? How did I get from like, you know, I saw an email that said like, hey, did you forget to come to this meeting? And then your brain is like, and I'm going to die alone in the street. And you're like, what just happened? 
like, and the, the brain is lightning fast. It can do this so quickly. Usually what I recommend to people is when you find yourself spiraling, when you have one of those, one of those declaratory statements, take a pause and try and come back to whatever the most recent actual fact you have. Like what, what triggered this whole thing, right? What brought you from that point? So if it's something like I ate something I shouldn't have, okay, great. All of the other stuff I just made up is, is all conjecture. That's all pretend, right? That is in this brain character model, right? If worry or anxiety, all it takes is for the unfiltered character to say like, we ate that and that's it. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Everything is going to spiral out of control. And I'm going to be right back to the weight that I was five years ago. Okay. Where did that come from? Right. In that moment, all it took was the unfiltered part of the brain to be like, oh no. And then if worry or angst and stress, they literally call in the creativity character and they say, what, what could happen? What do you think because of this one decision I make, what could happen next? Some people, their creative character, not creative. And so when they say, what could happen? They go, I don't know. These are the people in life that never seem to worry about anything, right? This is the person that shows up to work in an Uber and you're like, what just happened? And you're like, oh, I had a flat tire this morning. And you're like, did you call anyone? And they're like, no. And you're like, um, what? Like, like, aren't you going away this weekend? Like, yeah. And you're like, what? Like, what are you going to do about it? And they're like, I don't know. I'll figure it out later. <laughs> and you're like, you how, how am I more worried? Right. How am I more worried about your tire than you are? Other people, their creativity character is way over overdeveloped, right? So the second you make that one decision that you didn't want to and worry or angst brings in creativity, some people's creative character is like on fire. And they will be like, great, I love this. And they bring over a drafting board and like a flip chart and they just start coming up with every scenario. <laughs> yeah. And the problem is they'll write it out. And then at the bottom in all bold, like red, they'll be like disaster. They rip that off, tack it on the wall, but then they just keep going. And they'll, and like a really creative brain by the end of this, it's almost like your room is just surrounded in all of these papers that you don't even have to read all the bullets because in the bottom, it's like disaster, horror, dying alone, this like. So imagine trying to focus. If I'm staring at my computer screen right here and I'm surrounded by pages that talk about all of the possible disasters and horrors that are coming, the problem is they're not real. They're all made up. They're my creative brain telling me all the ways that that one decision could trigger disaster. How does that motivate anyone to start to feel like, okay, well then it's okay, or that's not a big deal. Like We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to get it right. The trick isn't realizing, yep, none of these are true. None of them are like, they're all just manufactured, made up things that my brain has decided to worry about. And they get in the way of being able to make a different decision. It's being able to recognize when your creativity character is going out of control and saying, wait, time out. I don't need these. You know, what was the last fact? What triggered the unfiltered part of my brain to say, oh shit. And then figure out from there. Okay. So I ate a handful of Hershey's kisses. That's the last fact I have. How did I get from there to like 15 different disaster scenarios? It's trying to downplay the intensity of all of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not that I am in the fitness industry, but anytime I talk to you know patients of mine who are having trouble motivating to get to the gym or to go anywhere, like the first thing I tell people is, wait, if you pay for a gym membership, you know, you have access to it seven days a week all the time. And if it's a nice gym, start going to the gym not to work out. Just go there. Like you pay for it. Go there before work. I, I talked to somebody about this years ago. 
he had a bunch of roommates. They had one bathroom and he belonged to a really nice gym. And I was like, well, why wouldn't you just get up in the morning, go to the gym, leave all your clothes in there, change, shower, get all ready for work at the gym and then go to work. And then on your way home, stop back by the gym. You know, you already have all your clothes there. Change again. If you don't feel like working out, don't. You pay for it. Use it. Demystify it. Try and get away from this notion of like, the only reason to go there is if I put in a good workout. He was already in pretty decent shape. And he started to get in much better shape because at the end of the day, he was like, right, all I want to do is watch TV. So he would swing by the gym and he would watch TV and like walk on the treadmill or like sit on the bike. Once he got past that notion that every time had to be this like full blown and it no longer stressed him out to go to the gym, he was going all the time because he lowered that kind of barrier, that stress or threshold because it was like just normal. It's getting out of your own head and just trying to be like, right, what are the things I need to do for myself? How do I make that happen? Mm -hmm. I love that. And I love how you talk about scheduling it in your calendar because I let my clients know that, but that was just such a really great explanation of why Mm -hmm. you should schedule it in the calendar. And I love, I also love that you say, I can suggest necessary workout or self-care workout because Mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, and I find myself doing this, I'm guilty of this, where I will not write it down in my calendar and then somebody needs something, you know, and it's like, oh, well, it looks like I, I was planning to go to the gym at this time. I mean, I usually still make it to the gym because it's a priority, but it's one of those where it's like, if I set a specific time that I want to go, if it's not in my calendar, I don't really think of it as a priority. It's something that I can push off until later that evening. And you know, later that evening, I might not get the most effective workout because I'm more tired than when I would schedule it earlier in the day. I mean, I think that that's so helpful, especially for people that are just getting into fitness to hold themselves accountable, because I talk about accountability a lot as a coach and clients want that external accountability when in reality, that's a way of being accountable to yourself but also externally with seeing it on your calendar. Mm-hmm. I've been at this six years, five years, smartly, but six years, and I still write everything on my calendar. Four days a week, what lift I'm doing, every day I go for a walk, absolutely everything that I need and want to do goes in the calendar. And it's a nice little dopamine hit of highlighting it when I'm done, but it's still there. It's that wonderful visual aid of like, oh no, I actually don't have an extra hour to go do these five things for you in the morning because I have this that I need to do. And then maybe hit me up later if you still need help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think with that, Iris, like when you have something on your calendar and someone asks you to do something, the one thing I've had to tell my clients is if you have something written down on your calendar and it's a workout, You can tell someone, oh, sorry, I already have that. I don't have that time available. How about we do another time? And if they say, oh, well, what do you have available? I've had to tell people you don't owe anybody an explanation. And I think that's something that a lot of people, when they feel that guilt, they feel like they need to justify or give an explanation as to why they can't do something. And they actually get themselves into more of a pickle than if they were to just say, hey, you know what? I don't have that time available. What's another time that works for you? 
Mm-hmm. And I used, like, there's certain people in my life, like, when I would say no, and this was a practice, they would hammer at it until I was, like, either, like, so upset. I was like, you know what? I can't, okay? <laughs> or I would tell them, and then that would be, like, them trying to make excuses for me not to do what I needed to do. And that's hard. I mean, I can't deny it. That's hard. How would you approach that? You know, it, and it's going to be different for everybody and every relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, because obviously it's different if you're living with somebody than if it's a friend or if it, you know, it depends on the need. It depends on a bunch of them. But I think that some of it is knowing, right, you don't, the instinct sometimes to want to explain is because what you want in that moment from that other individual is understanding and agreement. Your hope is that the more I explain, the more they'll be capable of saying, ah, now I hear you. I understand. I agree that it's a priority and and we've eliminated any sort of tension. The difficulty is that it is okay to not agree. It's okay for you to want to do one thing and your partner would want to do a different thing and for them to be disappointed about that. And the question becomes making sure that it's a reasonable proportion that there are times you're each willing to do things for one another. And there are also times where they can figure out a different way to get that need met. It doesn't always have to be you. And if you have a partner who relies on you as their primary for most things, it puts a lot of pressure of the, oh, well, it's not just that you want to go out for dinner. You want to go out to dinner with me. You need my time. You want my, like, well, but if what I need to be my full present self is to be able to go through with kind of my self-care routine. If I keep sacrificing it, it builds resentment and anger, and eventually it will poison that relationship. Eventually, if you keep doing things always to subvert your own needs in a place of somebody else, it's not going to serve in the long run. And the calendar the calendar is a double-edged sword, right? Because I would bet anything that some of the people listening to this right now are thinking, okay, what if I put on my calendar right now, I'm going to do a workout tonight at home, half an hour workout. It increases stress because for some people they need to block it out, but also it is then a potential for failure. People see it as once I write it down, if I don't do it, if I delete it, if I skip it, that comes back to that guilt shame of I'm so fearful of the guilt or the shame that I don't want to put it down. Because if I don't put it down, if it happens, great. And if it doesn't happen, I didn't technically do it wrong. But that's, that is uh, it's a fallacy. It's not true. Just because you don't put it down doesn't mean you're not going to feel guilt and shame. So it's that same notion of trying something different. And also recognizing that if you put it on your schedule and you commit to it and you don't do it, that's okay because that's all data. That's all information. If I decided right now, I want to start working out at home three days a week, I don't know where it fits. And if I have a bad habit of thinking back to the last time I worked three days a week and, or or, sorry, worked out three days a week, well, what if that was 15 years ago? my schedule, my life, who I was, all of the details, that doesn't apply now. So if I try and do it that way, it's not going to work. So it's the same idea of the just go to the gym, don't work out, just go. 
if you're feeling like you're having a really hard time getting over the hump of just getting to the gym, usually that's my first thing I tell people, like grab your laptop, go there, sit in the little cafe area, don't work out. I don't care. Get over the notion of like going to the gym and arriving at the gym is this stressful, same thing with the calendar. Try it out, put it on your calendar. And if what you discover is, okay, the time I picked doesn't work, okay, we can't label that as a fail, but it's what keeps people from trying these different things is a fear of once I write it down, once I commit to it, if I don't do it, now what? Now I've failed and I wrote it down and I can't deny it. But the reality is you know it internally anyway. That unfiltered character is saying, I can't believe it. I didn't put it on my calendar, but like we did not do what we set out. The guilt is all still there. And I mean, you guys can tell me if I'm if I'm off base, but every trainer I know or that I've worked with would rather a client come in and say, here's what I tried and it didn't work. Here's the time I set out and I don't know why I can't get motivated. I don't know many trainers that are going to just yell at somebody and be like, well, you failed. Are you kidding me? If a client Not comes in and says, <laughs> yeah, right. Like if a client yeah. comes in and is able to say, I tried to put it in, I was trying to do this at home workout something about it just didn't work. And then I felt worse. Mm -hmm. Great. Not great that you felt worse, but great that you tried it. Now, you know, try something different, try something different, make a different mistake. Mm -hmm. It's okay. And, but we get so caught up in this. I don't want to mess it up. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't want to do it wrong. I don't want anything that is a check mark in the failure column. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if anybody is going to progress anywhere, you can't fear the check mark in the failure column. That's so true. Like there is no path forward without failure. I think people mix up failure at a task and being a failure a lot, you know? Because like, yeah, maybe yeah. you put something on your calendar, you didn't do it. You, I mean, technically you failed at that. You didn't do it. You're not a failure because you didn't do it. You don't suck. You're not broken. You're not going to die alone in the street. You just, you failed at a task. Okay. Try it differently. That's a great distinction. Really important to say. I, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you fail at something, piggybacking off of that, looking at it as not necessarily a failure, but looking at it as feedback. Mm -hmm. Hey, that didn't work for me. How can I make this better? How can I take a step back, take a deep breath and think about, okay, if working out at 11 a.m. during the week is not feasible for me, what ways, how can I get creative to make a different time work? It's it's really, it's simple, but it's not easy. Right. It's simple, but it's not easy. We have like a ton of sound bites that are fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to write all of these down. Like you guys are on fire. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's just that. It's not not necessarily being afraid, right? Because Brooke, I feel like what you're saying is kind of, it's that piggyback adding of like, right. One, we can't be afraid of something failing. Not mm -hmm. that I'm a failure, right? You know, like I was saying, but oh, then yeah. also how do we relabel that as like certain fails are successes? Absolutely. Right? Like, the brain does not agree with that, right? <laughs> no. The brain inherently guilt shame, whatever we want to call it, likes to say, oh, no, 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 that was terrible. And we all know it. And it's like, is it though? 
I mean, again, to your point, when I was in grad school, I remember I had the combination of classes and a job that I had at the time I was running regular. Okay. Jogging. Let's (laughs) put that in the jogging. Never like, but (laughs) I was jogging. Yeah. I was jogging (laughs) like three days a week and I, I couldn't fit it anywhere. The only time I could go for a run was early in the morning. I am never going to be an early morning workout person. I remember the first time I did it, I was like not even a quarter mile in. And I felt like I was running through deep sand. I was like, I can't, my leg, like, I was like, I couldn't do it. And if I committed to that and said, well, this is the only time it's going to go, that wouldn't have even lasted a week. I I don't even know if it would have lasted a second run. It just would have been on my calendar and I would just not do it, which means now I put something on my calendar and because I'm not willing to be honest with myself, I'm not going to do it. And then I feel terrible being able to say, oh yeah, I tried to run in the morning and it was horrible. And I don't ever want to do that again. I need to find an alternative. Great. But if I guilt myself, if I make myself feel bad, if I say, well, I have to do it this way, it's not going to go well. And it's even if I did it, it's going to decrease the amount of kind of recharge or recharging your own internal resources, right? It's going to, it's as beneficial if I'm doing it, I hate it. But it's all just that process of reminding yourself, I got to try different things. Some of them will work. Some of them won't. That's okay. You know, some weeks it may work. The next week it might not. That doesn't mean I did it right one week and wrong the next. It just means whatever was going on this week, that plan didn't work. The best scenario possible is that you have an arsenal of self-care, fitness, health, where you know, well, if I'm traveling, I have this set of tools. If I'm at home, I have this other set of tools. If it's freezing outside, I have, you know, it's all of it. It's knowing that no one thing all the time is going to work. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. He's got a wonky shoulder. So he's very apprehensive of lifting weights, even just holding them at his side for lower body stuff. And we were talking about, okay, well, let's look at some things that you can do because there's always something you can do and some ways to make it suck less because he doesn't super enjoy exercise, right? He knows he should, he doesn't love it. But what are some things where the necessary shit show, you can put it on your calendar, have the necessary shit show. What are some ways to make it suck less? You know, you don't want to go outside when it's freezing cold. Okay. Uh, let's find a gym, a super cheap gym that has a treadmill. You don't want to do, you don't want to hold weights. That's fine. Let's look at some machines, see what you can do. You know, if, I mean, maybe upper body stuff is just off the board right now. That's fine. You don't have to. Absolutely. Making it suck less. Yeah. And eventually I've used that strategy for other people too. And what I've noticed is that instead of going into it with this mindset of like, oh, this is going to suck. I hate this. This is stupid. Why am I doing this? Going into it with the mindset of, what are some ways that maybe I can just enjoy this just a little bit? They start to progress faster and then they start to pick up on the things about it that make their life so much better, right? They're stronger. They get less winded. They get better sleep. They have a better mood. They enjoy being outside for once in their life. All of these trickle down things. It's so cool to see just starting from like, what little tiny things can I do and how can I make them not suck so much? Yeah. Yeah make it suck a little less. You know, yeah. it's those little 
those little joys, if, it, if it's kind of a, okay, I've set an exercise goal, but like on the way home, I'm going to swing by my favorite coffee shop. Great. If that gives you enough of a boost or tips the scale towards, okay, like it's all cost benefit, right? You're, it always takes an outlay of energy, right? And if you need a minimal amount of energy to get there or to do it, and then the hope is that you get that amount back plus a little, you know, and that's it. So it's those little things that if it helps push it towards like, ah, that makes it more fun, you know, right? That's why I know a lot of people who coming home and then going back out to the gym is too hard because it costs too much. It's too, for other people, they need to come home because that's where they recharge and get enough energy to go back out. Yes. I love that. That's another person I was talking to. He doesn't want to go home and then go out for a run. So he brings his stuff and he runs around the parking lot of the, he has a ginormous complex. He does that for half an hour. It's just the barrier of entry dropping down so that he can do it without sucking up more of that. I know you've talked about the social battery or the, just the personal battery without sucking more of that power. Yeah. And in that battery kind of model, right. And we don't have to go through the whole thing, but conceptually, if you picture just any battery, right, let's say for me, and this happened to me when I was in grad school, I, I had been going to a gym and it was in like a strip mall kind of. And and at the end of it, there was a tiny like convenience store that got bought out. They put in a huge grocery store. Uh, they didn't change parking. So all of a sudden I used to go to the gym and for me, and I didn't have this kind of framework then I needed at least 15% battery to get to the gym. Once I got to the gym, I usually got back 20, maybe 25 so for me to go to the gym, it was it's not like a massive gain of energy. It was a net gain of like 5% battery. But if I don't have 15%, I can't get there. So if I'm at home and I'm at 10% and all I'm thinking about is, oh, how do I get to the gym? How do I? Nope. That's good. That guilt is going to drain my battery and I get further from it. I need to be able to say, what do I need to get 5%? What do I, what can I do at home that gives me 5% so now I can get there? And when they opened up this grocery store, all of a sudden parking became a giant pain in the ass. People were parking all over the place. They would block rows. Like you could spend 20 minutes circling, trying to find parking. It changed this, this equation. All of a sudden I needed 20 to 25% battery to go to the gym. And I didn't know at the time I just stopped going because all of a sudden I was like, why can't I get to the gym? And it was because now if I was lucky, it was costing me 20 to 25%. And if I was lucky, I was getting that back. But most of the time I wasn't. So it went from being a slight gain in my battery to being a loss, which was enough that I just stopped. I was like, the parking's annoying, but I just can't get motivated to go because it wasn't within my reach. And sometimes we're not honest with ourselves about that. Sometimes you come home at 10% and you're like, I need 15 And if I just give myself grief for why am I not at 15? How come I can't go? How come that just drains it further? It's being able to say, right, okay, today was a particularly tough day. If I have a chance of making it, I need to do something right now that is a 5% gain. Whether it's read, take a walk, take a nap, you know, watch a show, whatever it is that charges you a little bit to get you to the point where you can go. Because otherwise, uh, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Well, this has been so great, Josh. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Every time I hear you speak, I learn so much. So I'm very grateful for your time and your wisdom. Same here. 
same here. You guys are awesome. And I, I love it. I love listening to the two of you banter. I love how honestly you approach all this. I think it's so important. You know, I, I also think you're both really funny and awesome. So like that's, you know, but that just we adds like to, to think the so, but, so that feels good. Well, I think so. Um, no, but thank you guys so much for, for having me on. It was awesome. Oh, our pleasure. We'll have to have you back. Yes. It was Anytime. such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Josh. And I know, I know that I have a few clients that listen, so I'm so excited to hear what they think of it because it's just been such a gift to have you on the podcast. So thank you oh, so much. You guys are the best. Well, and let, let me know. I always love the feedback. Oh, of course. We will. Of All course. right. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you again. Talk to you soon. Have a great day. Oh, you're very welcome. Talk to you later. Bye. 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 And for all of our lovely listeners out there, thanks so much for hanging with us. I hope you got as much out of this as we did, because I know at least I, uh, and I think I can speak for Brooke here. I, I always learn so much, as I said, when Josh speaks. He's uh, just a wealth of knowledge in the self-care department and just getting really honest with our emo very emotional selves. That is very, very true. And you can absolutely speak for me in that case, because I also learned so much from Josh. And if you're not following him, please do so, because he has so much great information. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. So follow him on Instagram at drj.smith and uh, be enlightened. <laughs> yes, be enlightened. And we look forward to talking to you soon. Yes, siree. Okay, love you. Bye. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to Tater Talks, two bitches talk fitness. If you enjoyed the show, let us know by writing a review, subscribing wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find me, Iris, on Instagram at Iris Deadlifts. And you can find me, Brooke, on Instagram at Get You a Brooke. We'll talk to you soon. Nice. Nice. <laughs>